Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports. Listen, I got such a show stacked up for you. You're going to have to put a seatbelt on. It is amazing. I'm not going to spend any time talking about the news. You can check it out at justthenews.com. Back to back. First, we have Jim Bopp, the great lawyer, uh, constitutional lawyer, who's at the heart of the vaccine mandate battle in America's universities. You do not want to miss this interview. He's going to bring us up to speed on the Indiana University case. And I think he's going to make some big news on this show. So get ready for that. And if that isn't exciting enough, General Mike Flynn is joining us right after that to talk about the Afghanistan debacle. It is a debacle. And one of the things we want to ask him, because he was the head of intelligence for such an important part of this time in Afghanistan for the military, what did President Biden know when he looked us in the eye a few weeks ago and said, Afghan army will hold, don't worry about it. What did he really know? I have a funny feeling we're going to find out it wasn't good. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim Bopp, followed by Mike Flynn, two amazing guests on one day. I can't wait to get started. We'll be right back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, I like to say a very consequential guest, because over the last 20 or 30 years, as I've been a reporter in Washington, D.C., his work as a lawyer on constitutional issues, on issues of freedom, they are epic. And they've led to some of the biggest Supreme Court and appellate court rulings I can remember covering in my lifetime. His name is James Bopp, and he is one of the greatest lawyers in Washington. James, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, John. Great to be on, and and of course, you you've done work, you know wonderful work for the conservative cause, and I sure am honored to be on your show. Well, thank you. Very kind. So you're in the middle of I think one of the epic fights for liberty right now, and that is the balance between addressing the issues in the pandemic and personal liberty. And uh, you're the lead counsel now in the Indiana University case, and you're trying to create a situation where people who have a physical or ethical reason not to take the vaccine don't have to lose access to their schooling or their jobs. Thus far, the first few rulings have been tough, but uh, you seem optimistic that this is going to go somewhere. Can you bring us up to speed on what you've seen in that case? Yes. You know, the critical issue is when the, the government restricts our freedom or requires us specifically what we're litigating, you know, introduce a chemical into our body, the, the question always is and needs to be, is there sufficient justification for the government to require this? And so that's the real issue that we're fighting over. Of course, we're challenging IU's vaccination mandate for students. And of course, that was instituted just a, a couple months ago for the fall semester, which is begin which began this uh, week at IU. And you know, our 
claim is that students, college students are adults. They have a right to decide what medical treatment they're going to take. They have a right, generally, of bodily integrity and autonomy. And any time the government's going to invade that, there has to be a sufficient justification. Now, IU claims, and so far the courts have, have agreed, that adult students in college have no real right to uh, require the Indiana University to justify their vaccination requirement. Uh, is that, and that the students have, to, you know, that students are going to have to receive these vaccinations if the college has any, you know, uh, rational reason to require it. That's called rational basis scrutiny. It's the lowest scrutiny, and the government always wins in that situation. But we are saying that no. Uh, heightened scrutiny is required, which requires the government to justify why they're doing this to the students. And, uh, and uh, if that level of scrutiny is applied, it's the level of scrutiny that's applied, you know, in numerous situations where we have invasions of, you know, the bodily integrity and autonomy right. of the citizens. There's nothing more intrusive then the government coming along and sticking needle in in you and injecting chemicals into your body. What what could be more intrusive than that? So that's what's at stake. Who has to prove that this is uh, justified? Do the students have to prove it's not justified and that the government wins if there's just some reason for them to do this? Or does the government have to prove that this sort of invasion of your rights and your body uh, is justified. Such an important argument. And, you know, I think most people start with the assumption that uh, we have control over our bodies. And, and uh, now you look at something, in this case, this isn't even a fully approved vaccine, right? It's an experimental vaccine. And I think that adds a, 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 such a, a layer of uncertainty about government mandates. Um, then the universities come back and say, well, listen, uh, we do give exemptions. I think Indiana and I think UConn now, in another case that we've been watching, uh, we have exemptions. So if you don't want to get it, you can just not come to campus or, or go to another school. Early on, it looks like the courts have been accepting that the exemption is a good balancing mechanism. But you have real concerns that the exceptions are kind of arbitrary, right? And that uh, the larger protection of liberty isn't addressed by them. Where does this go? I mean, obviously, you're going to retool your strategy after the early rulings, but where does this go? And how do you, I think, push forward on this uh, question of both an experimental drug, which the vaccine is, and two, the pushback that universities have? Well, if you don't like it, you can go to another university or you can take one of the exceptions. Yeah. Well, the problem with that claim, I use claim, that we can just go to another school is the well established uh, doctrine of unconstitutional condition. Right. Because the government cannot condition a benefit, or like the benefit of going to IU, for instance, on you waiving or giving up your constitutional rights. And that's, of course, what they're doing. They're saying, well, you, you know, you have to give up the right to decide medical treatment decisions for yourself. I mean, you're an adult and you, you have to give that up uh, in order to go to IU. Well, uh, that means that your right to making medical treatment decisions has been uh, forfeited, and and that is a violation of of that right. They they can't uh, they can't do that to you. You know they like you know imagine uh, you you can't get a, a license to drive a car, you know unless you uh, agree that you won't uh, marry uh, somebody of another race. Right. Okay. Now, I mean, there's a constant, you know, the Supreme Court has held, uh, you have a constitutional right to marry. The, the government cannot uh, prohibit you from marrying somebody of another race. I mean, that went all the way to the Supreme Court and was decided in the 60s. Well, what happens if instead of just prohibiting you from doing that, they say, oh, well, okay, uh, you can't uh, get a driver's license or you can't go to IU, okay, uh, if, if you... Uh, marry somebody of another race. 
IU's position is that'd be fine. Yep. Because we because totally you just go to another school. Yep. Right. So they are seizing an enormous amount of power when they make the argument. Well, yeah, we can we can make uh, you give up all your rights to go to IU if you don't like it. Just go to another school. Well, that that is what has specifically been addressed by this unconstitutional condition uh, uh, doctrine, which means that if if uh, the government conditions a benefit on you giving up your rights, that is a violation of the right. And those are the issues that the court hasn't decided, right? Really, right now, the only thing the court has decided is whether a, a temporary injunction is warranted right and so there's still the merits of this case are very much alive people might have read the mainstream media think ah this thing's dead and those indiana university students have lost but it's just the opposite this case is just begun really in terms of its actual constitutional arguments right that's right and we'll be filing our brief on the merits of the appeal of the denial of the preliminary injunction on august the 30th in the seventh circuit wow Uh, what we what we pursued prior to this is what's called an emergency injunction pending appeal. Right. There's obviously very high standards that they use in deciding that. I have gotten them in the past, so they're not impossible to get, but they're very difficult to get. And that is what we pursued, but we were not able to get it. Uh, So we are back with the normal appeal of the, the case. Uh, and furthermore, and you you will uh, now be getting a an exclusive. Uh, we we have been retained by students in other states to bring similar claims. Wow. Yes, and we expect to do that in four or five states in the next couple of weeks. So that uh, you know. Uh, you know, I've learned a long time ago in litigation when you're doing what's called test case litigation is that, you know, the, you don't just pick one case and hope that you prevail. Yep. Right? You really need to bring cases throughout the country, uh, having different judges, different circuits. And particularly if you want to get to the Supreme Court, uh, you need a conflict in the circuits. And, uh, of course, that's a way uh, that, that that arises, is cases in, in multiple circuits throughout the country. This is a really important issue. The, you know, uh, let, let's look at what's happened over the last 18 months. At the very beginning, of course, you remember that uh, we were, you know, we had this massive uh, country-wide shutdown, people... Uh, required to stay into their ho- in their homes unless they had, you know, some uh, emergency or were seeking some essential service. And uh, of course, that was in light of a, a newly emerging virus where uh, it was thought, and there was even a, you know, a, an article published on this. Turned out to be bogus, but the estimate was 2.2 million deaths in the United States in the first year. Well, I think everybody agreed with that sort of prediction yep. that this is really serious yep. and that it justified some drastic action, uh, which involve, would involve the uh, loss of some of our freedoms temporarily. All right. And remember, it was flattening the curve for like two weeks and, uh, you know, then presumptively uh, everything was lifted. Well, of course, now, you know, things didn't get lifted. We're, we're here 18 months later, and uh, still serious violations of freedom are being required. But what has happened in the last 18 months? Well, we went up the bell curve, where we ended up uh, at the top of the bell curve with like 5,600 5, deaths a day right. at the top, right? And then we came down the bell curve, where we are now at somewhere between two or 300 uh, deaths a day in the whole United States. Well, look, this, this is at the end. This isn't at the beginning. This isn't at the top. This is now at the level of seasonal flu deaths, all right? And we don't shut down the whole country because of flus. And what we are saying is 
even though it might have been true and very likely true, frankly, in my opinion, that some serious violations of rights were, were justified at the beginning and as we cl climbed up the mountain and got to the top. Uh, but now we've come back down the mountain, we're down in the valley. It's now uh, at the level, frankly, of tick bites and all sorts of things that uh, people get and, you know, die from. And, uh, you know, we're, it's just not justified these serious violations uh, of rights that occur uh, that would uh, uh, that are occurring now, particularly with the mandate of vaccines. It is remarkable. And when you step back, I mean, one of the things that makes the law work you do so amazing to me is, you know, we're a lot of times we're in the fog of war and we see things as journalists at the tree level. And it's hard to see uh, the trees from the forest when you're down on the ground. You always have this ability to step back and look at the uh, at the situation in a very large way, the big picture. And that's the way the Supreme Court wants to look at things. Right? It doesn't want to get involved in those small disputes. It wants to settle things that are, are big issues. The pandemic and the way it's evolved, most people don't feel that way today because there's all this panic over the uh, the Delta variant. But in fact, uh, the numbers are showing that this is sort of a, a pandemic that's run its course and we're at the back end. Some experts I've talked to say it, it may just be um, an endemic disease, like in funds are going forward. It's not really a pandemic. So that's such an important point for us to remember. And I, I, you're one of the first lawyers that have mentioned this to me, but we're really in a different phase of this of this experience now, aren't we? We are, and the CDC has a whole, uh, they have a whole framework for pandemic. Yep. And it has to do with this bell curve. And, and where we are now is what's called the transition phase. And that's where it's come back down to basically the level that it was at the very, very beginning. It's at the same level of so many, uh, you know, it's uh, 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 the seasonal flu, which is kind of the, the bellwether that they use. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it's not even at the top 10 on, on deaths in the United States. The, wow. the coronavirus at this level of about 300 uh, a day uh, is like 11th or 12th. Amazing. In terms of death, reasons that people die. I mean, we don't we don't want this. We don't like this. Sure, we, we don't want people to die from anything. But the reality is, uh, and this was a very interesting statement uh, that I didn't understand that was recently made, and that is how it, why is it that there are so few diseases that have actually been totally eliminated? Smallpox is one, right? right? Okay, and the, the reason that it was able to be eliminated was that it never infected animals. The smallpox virus does not affect animals. So there is no what's called a animal reserve. But the vast majority of diseases are harbored in animals, including the coronavirus, yep. including the flu, right? All right, including you know measles and other things that have not been able to be eliminated because the only way you could eliminate them would be to kill all the animals, right? Well, you know, well that's not going to happen. That's not happening. <laughs> okay, so what you do is you learn to live with them. Yeah, you learn to minimize their effect. You learn to develop therapeutics, vaccines, uh, you know, is an effective weapon in many of these uh, cases for to prevent uh, the spread and, and adverse uh, effects of, of getting the infection, you know, and, uh, and you just learn to manage it, all right, while you don't give up all your freedoms. You know, it's only, I mean, smallpox is a great example of a... Uh, a terrible disease. The, the evidence is uh, that uh, we have evidence of smallpox killing people uh, a thousand years before Christ, which wow. was 3,000 years ago. We have evidence of smallpox. It ravaged the human race for 3,000 years before it was eliminated in 1976, we think. Right. 
And, uh, uh, and in that period of time, in fact, in the 1900s, there were 300 million people killed by smallpox worldwide. Well, if you look at the coronavirus, uh, so far, the death toll worldwide is about 4 million. Now, that's a lot, you know, right. that, and we certainly want to do everything as we have been to prevent that from happening. But it is what? Not, not even 10% of the of smallpox deaths in the 1900s. And then you add the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions that were killed over 3,000 years. And the only thing that happened with smallpox is a case in 1905 that upheld the requirement of the city of Boston that uh, vaccines for smallpox could be mandated. Now, number one, the the death toll, the estimate is 30% of the people who got smallpox died. Right. What is the estimate of those that get, actually get COVID who die? Well, 99.98% recover. Amazing. So it's not 70% recover, right. like with smallpox. Right, right. It's 99.98% recover. So the, uh, the death toll is way smaller, you know, at the level of all sorts of diseases, right? And we don't give up all our freedoms. And, and all, quote, all that happened was the, the vac- vaccination was mandated. The other thing that was different about smallpox is the vaccination for smallpox had been around for decades, probably 100 years, back into 1800. And this is what happened. It's a very interesting story. People noticed that if somebody had cowpox, which is a cousin of smallpox, had had cowpox, they were immune from getting smallpox. Now, nobody knew about viruses at the time, but they noticed the association, all right? And cowpox had basically a zero death rate. So if you had cowpox, you would not get smallpox. So what they did was they started getting infected blood from somebody with cowpox, and then they cut open the skin right. and put it into the other other people. This was <laughs> what, what we would now call a vaccination, very crudely done. And then the result was people would get cowpox and be immune from smallpox. And that that had been around for a hundred years. Amazing. And was very safe because there was basically a zero death toll in cowpox. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah. So that arose. That that is this case in in 1905 called Jacobson, which uh, Indiana University and these and these courts are citing, and that was the context. All right. Of, of upholding that. Now, on the rights side, in other words, were there any rights violated? Well, in 1905, the Bill of Rights had not been applied against the state. Right. And so all of our Bill of Rights rights that have since been protected against the state were not applied. And it was a height of the progressive era that that were you know the you know progressives were very much enamored with oh, yeah. experts making decisions, not you know not representatives of the people and and bowing to representative or, or bowing to experts, uh, which led to the most notorious one of the most notorious decisions of the Supreme Court called Buck v. Bell, where they cited this Jacobson case regarding forced vaccinations and said that that forced vaccinations was broad enough to include forced sterilization of people with mental retardation. Yeah, of course. Which led to the statement, quote, 
three generations of imbeciles is enough. Wow. So what IU is claiming under Jacobson is not just the authority for forced vaccination, because they say Buck v. Bell has not been overruled, and Jacobson leads directly to forced sterilization. So <laughs> if as a mental health measure, IU thinks, as I'm sorry, a public health measure, IU decides forced sterilizations is required, well, they're claiming the authority to do it. That's an amazing thing to even begin to ponder. I mean, that's how important this case is. It's why we really got to keep our eye on it. Jim, I only got a couple seconds left. How, how do people stay in touch with you on this case? How do they can stay up on uh, all the breaking news that's going to come from this case? Well, there's a website and a group called IU Families for Choice, not Mandates. Wow. And, and they're, they're, that's a, that is a private Facebook page right. that you can, you can apply. And uh, the, but they also have a website that, of course, anybody can go on. So these these are good places to find out about that. And American Frontline Doctors uh, is going to fund uh, help fund our other cases, and and they will be carrying that on the, their website as well. Fantastic. Well, we're going to be watching this. How soon before we see the next lawsuit for students? You think that'll be coming soon? It'll be coming soon. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. That's important. Uh, uh, Mr. Bob, thank you so much for all you do and for spending so much time with us today. I learned a lot just about the law. I think are gonna, people are going to be thinking about this now. It's a much more complex issue than it's been made out to be in the media. True enough. And, and great to be on your show. And, and, and thank you for everything you have done. Uh, thank you very much. We'll be following this closely and hopefully get you back on. All righty. All right, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, General Mike Flynn is joining us. We're going to be talking Afghanistan. Be right back. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, someone very close to my heart in my journalism work, somebody who served this country with extraordinary honor, including worrying about Afghanistan and Iraq and the war against terror. Joining us right now, the one and only General Mike Flynn. General, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate everything that you're doing to continue to get the truth out there. And you're uh, really, really awesome oh, journalistic thank you. talent and through uh, Just the News. So thanks for what you're doing. Well, you, you serve this country with such distinction and figuring out the war against insurgency and terrorism was such an important mm-hmm. part of what you did. When you've watched the last seven to nine days in Afghanistan. What has run through your mind as you've watched the American superiority collapse and we're made a mockery in the world and we can't even get our own people out. There's still 10,000 people on the ground we haven't gotten out. Yeah, I mean, number one, this was all avoidable. It was so avoidable and it was all well known. This is not something that suddenly snuck up on us. It might've snuck up on Joe Biden uh, and maybe some of our senior military leaders Although it, it, it would be, I think, I think they would be lying through their teeth if they were put in front of a, a uh, an open hearing in Congress. Uh, they would be lying through their teeth if they were to say anything. But yeah, we knew that this was hap- going to happen. Yeah. And this business about not not sensing that it could happen this fast is ridiculous. Yep. So so that that's part of what went through my mind. The other part, though, John, that's more concerning, is the bigger issues in play because Afghanistan is going to continue to unravel and we're going to have to continue to deal with it. We have thousands and thousands of Americans still there. We have obviously other people that have supported our cause that are there. So there's a lot of people trapped. I, I, I mentioned, um, you know, this latest uh, statement by uh, Abdullah, the first vice president, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things happening uh, in the country 
in, in Afghanistan right now, but I'm more concerned about Chinese actions and what the nation oh, of China yeah. is, is doing. You know, in the last 24 hours, we've seen another set of, of, uh, of uh, aerial incursions over the Ta- Taiwan defense zone. And also the greatest beneficiary of this debacle in Afghanistan is really China. Yep. China's, China's uh, for most people that don't know, you've, you've touched on it at, at many times, China's Belt Road Initiative. Oh, yeah. One of, the, one of the big components of that Belt Road Initiative, one of the major geographic you know, pieces of terrain that China needed was they needed a clear path through Afghanistan, and now they have it. So you're going to see the, the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, they will recognize you know, the Islamic uh, government of Afghanistan here, the caliphate of Afghanistan, they're going to they're going to recognize them at, at, a, at the right moment. It's going to continue to embarrass the United States. And, you know, I think everybody that that knows anything about China knows that China is not going to play fair with us. Oh, no. You know, this is not warfare is not fair. You know, that's that's, that's maybe the title of my next article is warfare is not fair. <laughs> It's not meant to be fair. No. It's meant to be one. Yep. It's meant to be one. And once you win, like we say, it's the, the winner's right history, right? So we are right now in an era of American history where we, and I, I don't want to leave people with hopelessness because there's definitely things to do, but we may be in an era of American history that may be where we may be seeing the end of the American dream. And uh, and I, I, wow. I don't want to... I don't want to overemphasize that at this stage because we still have an awful lot of things to our advantage, uh, with, with the exception of the political class, particularly at the federal level. That is that is one of our greatest weaknesses right now. And my, my bigger message to the American people when we see these types of tragedies that are unraveling in places like Afghanistan or, or our weaknesses that we're showing across the board around the world in our foreign policy uh, where we're just showing massive weakness. I mean, we have the Chinese on our own soil, uh, uh, count, you know, giving us giving us counsel, and it's just insane. So we are in a place now in the in the in the history of the United States of America that we have not been. We are definitely in a moment of crisis. So now, what do we do about it? Because, like I always like to tell people, John, and I learned this in, in, as a child, and I learned it in the military in space, Bad things are going to happen. But it's not that bad things happen. It's it's you're judged by what you do about those bad yep. things, right? You're judged by how do you overcome those. And to me, I think that America can. I believe strongly that America can overcome much of what it is that we're facing. But we've got to get we've got to get the people of this country fired up to the point where people are no longer taking for granted everything that we have, right? We cannot take for granted any of the freedoms. People that are like my age, and I'm I'm about I'm going to turn 63 this year. So people that are in wow. my gener and people that are in my generation, we screwed this up. I, and I'll, I'll I will I will take a, a piece. So others can say, "No, he's full of it." No, I think our generation actually turned our children and our grandchildren into these like safe space people, right? <laughs> Young people and safe spaces and, uh, and snowflakers. Yeah, that's what I mean. That my is. father, yeah, my <laughs> father, my father and mother. I mean, my father is a World War II, career war generation right. guy, and they they work their tails off. My father retired as a sergeant from the army. You know, I'm one of nine kids. I mean, we were we were given the the ethos of hard work, treat others like you like to be treated, be a lifelong learner, and get out there and 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 you know and do the best that you can with the God given talents that you have. This country right now, my, particularly my generation, had better wake up and get back involved in their communities. There's no more, well, I'm just going to go off and retire and play golf. If yep. you're doing that, then you've given up. You've given up on what is your responsibility as an American citizen. And I think that the people that, that need to get involved in the local school boards, in the local communities, in, 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 in local politics, and they, even, even those that have some leadership skill from the past, or maybe still demonstrate a leadership skill. Maybe you have a pastor. Maybe you have somebody sitting in the pew that you go, well, I'd really like to see he or she do something for the, for our community. We need to start encouraging each other to do that, because otherwise we're going to have tyranny and we're going we're gonna to find ourselves in a state of anarchy in a country like, in a country that gets overtaken by tyranny. And that's, that's the sort of, that's the, that's the discussion that is taking place at many uh, dinner tables and in many bars and in many 
you know, places around the, the country today that people feel like our constitutional rights are being taken from us. So when we look at Afghanistan, to take it back to what's happening uh, overseas, this is not just about the failure and, the, and the, basically the deceit of ourselves lying to each other and lying about our, what we've been able to do for the, for the uh, people of Afghanistan or for the military of Afghanistan. You know, I listened to Biden's speech last night. And I thought it was pathetic. I mean, I was like, I wanted strength. Instead, I got weakness and I got blame being, being pushed to others, right? He's blaming yeah. the Trump administration. I mean, Trump didn't get us into that war. Trump kept us from basically Trump was the first president in four or five that kept us out of war. So yeah, and he bombed uh, the Taliban but, to the negotiating table, which uh, the right, Biden administration right. turned away. Right. I mean, a small tactical, a small tactical issue that would have been should have been put, had been in place, but they stopped doing it under yep. this administration was was precision strike. That's right. Whenever the Taliban reared its ugly head and we were downsizing the forces, we were moving towards you know a a clean departure. And if they if they raised their ugly heads there would be a precision strike against them. Well, this administration stopped that. So that's a tactical, that's a massive tactical error. And it was based on arrogance and incompetency. And frankly, they didn't even bother to talk to the American people about that. That's, nope. that's part of the problem. So, so that aside, we are in an era right now where the American people, my, particularly my generation, is the one that I'm, you know, and these are Democrats, Republicans. I, I call myself a, a JFK Democrat. Now, when I was working... You know, helping helping Trump win the last uh, in 2016, and then went into the White House. I went into the White House as a Democrat. M- most people don't know that I was a registered Democrat, but I call myself because my entire family we all grew up sort of in the era of JFK because I'm up I'm from up in New England here in Rhode Island, and um, and I and so if 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 we were if we look at the kinds of things that he espoused, and the kinds of things that he was attacking, it would be he would be right in that conservative mode today. You know, so. We, our country has shifted, and we're no longer a, a two-party Republican versus Democrats. We're now, we're now really a, a socialist versus conservative, and that's sort of where we are. And that divide is growing uh, uh, wider and wider. And the socialist side of that divide is not very uh, large. It's a very small minority of people, yep. frankly. Just very vocal, although, that's all. But they're very vocal. They're very well-funded. And, and they're in charge inside the federal government. Yeah. And so they have, they have control of things like our education department. They have control of our Department of Justice, which I'm very familiar with. And they have control of, our, of some of our law enforcement and, and definitely some of our intelligence community uh, structure. So that, that's what people in this country need to know. It's not, we, we are still the majority. That's what gives me hope, John. And that's why I'm out talking to the people around this country about you know, what they need to do. I use the phrase, local action has a national impact. People have got to get involved in their local communities like they've never been involved yep. in before. And do not let these politicians get away with the, the kind of actions and behavior that they have. I mean, we just cannot allow that. When I was a young boy, my I used to go every Memorial Day with my uncle, who was a true World War II hero. He, he, mm-hmm. he walked people through a, a minefield in France under fire and saved his battalion. And um, he would meet with the other uh, World War II vets at that time. It was in Fairfield, Connecticut. And we went out for lunch after one of the Memorial Day parades. And one, uh, I, uh, one of them asked the other guy, hey, what's the biggest lesson we can pass down to the next generation? They obviously looking at me as the young kid at the table. And I remember this like it was yesterday. One of those soldiers, I don't remember his name. I just know he's one of my uncle's friends. He said, the biggest lesson of World War II is inaction is complicity with the enemy. And I, that has stuck with me my whole life. If you yeah. see something wrong and you don't act, you're complicit in the wrongdoing. And we're at one of those moments, I think, in history where if we don't act, we're going to be complicit in a, a, a great destruction of the American experience. It's um, an enormous time. The stakes are very high. I want to take you to something that we opened up the podcast with um, uh, before you came on, and that is the current state of politics in Afghanistan. It's a little confusing. We know the American mm-hmm. situation, but Abdullah Abdullah, the first vice president, seems to be the guy running the show right now and negotiating with the Taliban. How does this play out? Does this turn into a civil war? Does Abdullah Abdullah just become a mouthpiece for the Taliban, the Taliban in control? What, what do you, uh, you, you know this region better than anyone. What, what do you think yeah. comes out over the next few months? Yeah. So if Abdullah, you know, and I, and I think you'll be, hopefully you'll be able to play that cut. But um, yeah. so if Abdullah 
does what he says he's doing, which he's the first vice president, and by their constitution, since Ghani, you know, absconded the country and left, uh, Abdullah is now by, by, the, by the Afghan constitution in charge of the country. So I think what he's going to do is he's going to sequester himself somewhere in the country. Right. You know, and, and there, there are some capable forces in Afghanistan, and they're primarily the special operations forces that have been trained, and they are very good. And, and I know some of these guys, and I know that I certainly know their commanders. So they're, I know that they're fighting today, and they've actually taken a few losses. But they will protect Abdullah. Abdullah will stay in the country. The country will likely bifurcate, meaning it'll, it'll split kind of along lines of, of the, that it used to be, you know, where you have the sort of the north-south divide, even though uh, the Taliban took over Mazar Sharif and Kanduz, there are still uh, areas up in the north, particularly uh, that will uh, that will stay as safe zones for people like Abdullah. Right. So he will he will put demands now out to the American uh, to the to America and to the international community to say, hey, look, you know, we had agreements, we had we had responsibilities, and I'm still in charge, and we need to protect many of these people. We don't want thousands and thousands and thousands of refugees to depart Afghanistan and go off into the northern stands or go off to America or go off to Europe. We want our people to be protected. So we're going to need help because there's going to have to be, even in war, you continue to, to negotiate, as we have seen with our negotiations over the many decades now, negotiating with the Taliban, which turned into a disaster for this for this particular administration because they gave up the stick that that yeah. a guy like Trump carried so and wielded so well. Sorties went uh, down by uh, more than right. 70%. We just didn't keep the air power up even as we were right. withdrawing troops. Was it a big mistake to give up Bagram early? Absolutely. We should have never given up Bagram. One of the yeah. and one of the big mistakes there, John, that most most listeners maybe probably don't know, but one of the big mistakes was the prison that yep. was on Bagram was filled with people that were the bad that guys came from, that, that were that came from Gitmo in many cases yep. that we we then sent back to Afghanistan yep. and now they're all they're now free. they're all released these these are all leaders these are all leader types okay mm. these are all seasoned seasoned terrorists and seasoned soldiers and warriors uh, in a in a in a culture that produces you know warriors you know I mean far more than than uh, than what than what people uh, you know, actually know. Yeah. So, so that prison being released, being opened up, and all those those guys back on the on the battlefield now, so to speak, gives them another uh, another capability that they did not have while we continue to maintain Bagram. So, yeah, we should have kept Bagram, and and should have continued to protect Kabul International, particularly the military side of it. And yep. and uh, frankly, you, everybody has seen the the C seventeen Starlifters yeah. now there. How that are horrifying. taken off with the people falling out. And I mean, it's, it's just incredible. I mean, it is. It makes you know, Saigon look like a, an orderly exit. It really does. And, oh, my God. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, listen, exactly. Leon Panetta, who's a lifelong Democrat, said this is Biden's Bay of Pigs moment. It was so badly thought out. It's a disaster of epic proportions. And that's a Democrat yeah. saying that. I mean, right? Yeah. Well, Leon Panetta, I got a lot of respect for Leon Panetta yeah. on certain levels sure. because he, he's a. You know, I do believe that Leon Panetta is not a left-leaning socialist. No, I really, not. I, no. I, I don't believe that he is that. But, but Leon liberal. Panetta needs, but Leon need, Leon needs to step up and and start to talk about the direction that the country's taking, yeah. where we're where we're we're ripping apart the constitutional rights right out of people's lives. Yeah. And so, guys like Leon Panetta, you know, he, if he's listening, he's got a voice out there in the Demo- within the Democratic Party, and he needs to get that party back for the track that it was on. We can fight and debate, you know, the, the ideas between liberalism and conservatism all day long. But when we're talking about socialists and Marxists and communism in this country, like we've never seen before, guys like Leon Panetta need to need to speak up. Yeah, no, they can be powerful voices at the end of their careers. And, uh, and uh, it's going to take every This is a moment where people have to put party aside and put country first. And we'll see if we can yeah. do that. I want to dig down to one last question, because you touched on this at the beginning. And to me, it may be the biggest of, of the lies. I, I called out President Biden this morning through a lot of factual reporting, because he literally said yesterday, I never thought we should have done nation building in the country and he actually sponsored the first nation building law he actually called for a marshall plan and he criticized republicans at the time who thought nation building was a bad so one statement he made yesterday demonstrably false but there's another one that happened about three or four months ago that i call the sugar pill 
moment of this. He stood in front of the cameras, and then General Milley, when he wasn't talking about right privilege, reiterated this a couple days later. I have full confidence that the Afghan army and its 300,000 are well-trained and will be able to hold off the 75,000 force of the Taliban. At the moment he said that, when I look through the SIGGER reports, just going through the Special Inspector General, not having access mm-hmm. to classified information, SIGGER said, listen, the Afghan army is so bad, they can't even fuel their own uh, trucks right. They, they lose fuel, they can't do it right, right. they're sloppy. Uh, they, they basically are the equivalent of a, a girl's lemonade stand trying to fight the Taliban. There were all of these warnings at the SIGGER, including in July, right as president was saying this. Yeah. When the president looked at the American people and said that, was he lying to the American people? Did he or should he have known that this force was never going to withstand the Taliban? Of course, he not not should have known. He knew. He knew. And I, and I because you mentioned Sigar, the, the yep. IG uh, Sopko, of right? Afghan Reconstructions. Right. Go pull mine. Pull my uh, my interview that they did, which is now public. It came out through a FOIA request while I was being persecuted by the right. Department of Justice. And it got it got quashed because of because it was a really positive thing from my standpoint as right. to what I was, when they were, you know, all these, all this noise about what I was doing, pull, pull my, my file and my cigar report that I provided. And it says exactly the same. It's just, it's sad. I'm sad because I was asked to come in to, to basically give my assessment. And I've been given assessments for years on Afghanistan. Yep. I spent you five, five years of my life over there. So I, 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 I know this. Yep. And so, yes. So it's not, he should have known he knew as well as our other uh, military leaders. And yet all along, every, every, every general, I'm one of them. I mean, I, you know, we all sort of kept saying, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Things are, things are just fine. They're going to be fine. I, you know, pull that cigar report that was foiled and, uh, I sure and, will. and post it if you don't mind, or I'll send it. I'll, I'll, send no, it I'll dig it right because, up. You don't have to do the work. I'll yeah, find that in five yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, we're going to write mean, this tonight. Yeah, I mean, pull up, pull it up, and, and you'll pull. You can pull quotes right out of it. Yeah. It's unbelievable. We have always known this. We've always known this, and the, the challenges is that, you know. And I'll I'll shut up on, on this remark. We are still in Europe, okay? So after World War II, yeah. one of the things my father my father was involved in training military police uh, after the war ended. He stayed in a place called Oberammergau at a joint German uh, um, U.S. Uh, military police training academy. So we could train police, right? We could train like, cause that's what you want more of. You want good police instead of, instead of a, you know, a big army. Right. right. So, so one of the, and we're, and we're still in Europe after however many years, 75, 80 70, years. Yeah. I mean, we're still yeah. in Europe. So there, there is a reason why you have to stay for a, a long time with certain things, with certain things. I mean, in hindsight, you know, being 2020, when should we have left Afghanistan? When, when President Hamid Karzai was elected in 2004, yep. not in 2002, because 2002 was very dangerous. Yeah, there was still it was a lot of unstable. Taliban on the ground. Yep. But when Karzai was elected in 2004, the Taliban had, had left the country. They were, they were really beaten up pretty badly. Karzai was elected. We should have left then and said to Karzai, here, look, we'll dump in, you know, a couple of billion dollars a year to your, to your coffers. You guys have these responsibilities. We will come in periodically and do some training with you. But that's it. It's your responsibility. It's your baby. Instead, what we did was we doubled and tripled down because we were in this mess yep. called Iraq at the time, which is which today. And I and I think Trump would, would agree with me. And in fact, I think he said it. It's probably one of the biggest strategic mistakes we ever made was going into Iraq. Yeah. So anyway, it's under, you know, I sat on. with uh, George H.W. Bush back in 2011 and he was mm-hmm. reflecting on his son's own leadership. And of course, he loved his son, W and Jeb very much. But he said to me as an elder statesman, going into Iraq was the wrong thing. We should fi- we should have finished the mission in Afghanistan and uh, made a more calculated decision. And, and that's him talking about his own son's president presidential decisions. Pretty remarkable moment in my career, remembering that. Um, General, this is such amazing stuff. And, and uh, I think the next few weeks are going to be so tenuous. Uh, what decisions we make could have a domino effect and years of impact. Yeah. I'd love to get you back on real soon because there's no one that understands the country as well as you do. Yeah. The other thing, and I'll leave it with this. There's a, another uh, report that I wrote in 2009. That's right. Uh, called Fixing Intel in Afghanistan. Actually, yep. you know, Stick that on, on your website and people can pull that down and, and take a read through that. It's 
Yeah, that, that created a, a lot deal. of shockwaves because a lot of the people in the intelligence community didn't like the the, the no. being called out for what was literally big failures, particularly in human. Right, right. And so I mentioned that, John, just because it's worth reading again. People need to read it to say, Jesus, what have, what have we been doing for the last two decades, 20 yeah. years? Incredible and just incredible. I, I feel so sorry, so sad, sad, more than sorry for, you know, the lives that have been lost and the tragedy that has been, you know, you know, sort of beholden to yep. uh, not just not just uh, Afghanistan, but all of the American servicemen and women who have served and, and, and suffered and those uh, families who have lost loved ones uh, who have given the ultimate, you know, ultimate measure of devotion to our nation who have lost their lives. I mean, you know, but the question is, is it worth it? I, I, I can't answer that right now, John, I, I, because I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, yeah. I'm so, I have such a, a level of anxiety about that issue because I've seen guys who have gotten killed and I've, and I've uh, gone to funerals, I've gone to memorial services, I've gone to ramp, what they call ramp service, ramp side ceremonies, uh, you know, in combat. And, and uh, Jesus, I just, I'm at a loss for words, but I just know that, that those people deserve our prayers and our thanks. Hundred percent, they do. Every person that served in any role deserves our, our lifelong gratitude because we could not have escaped so much of the terror attacks that probably would have been heaped on this country had it not been for the bravery and precision and excellence of our troops. And this is a failure of policy. It's not a failure of the incredible fighting men and women of America. And right, right, um, we're, we've got a lot. I, 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 I always see a cup always half full. I think we're going right. to pull through this, but boy, we got to make some good decisions quick, don't we, sir? Yeah, we sure do. And uh, and so you just keep doing what you're doing with Justin News, and I appreciate well, what you represent for journalism, frankly, because journalism is, is a dying uh, profession without people like yourself. And, and, and your audience and this audience, you know, is a smart audience because they really do pay attention. They're switched on, and they, and they do get involved. I believe that there's, certain, there's certain audiences out there, and I think yours is, yours is one among them that, uh, that get involved. And so... Uh, so anyway, we're going to so do the best to keep doing. them educated. Yep. We're, we're so grateful yep. for what you do, sir, every yep. day. And for the time you spent with us today, we're all smarter for it. Yep. Well, thank you very much. And we'll be back on here. Let me just let me know. Okay, all John? right, sir. Thank you very all much, right. General. God bless, God yep. bless you too. All righty. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up things for the day. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All right, folks, that wraps it up for the day. What a day. There's not much more I can say. General Flynn and and uh, Jim Bob said it all. Two important issues in our lifetime. They're defining issues. One for liberty, one for security. We've got to take them both seriously. And as the general said, we're at a tipping point. The American experience is hanging in the balance with how we come out of this Afghanistan crisis, how we deal with the other crises in the world, whether inflation, China. All of them are striking at once. We need to rise to the occasion. That was the message I took from today. All right. Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow with another big edition of John Solomon Reports. A lot going on and a lot of news to break. I can't wait to be there with you. Take care. Have a good night. God bless you.